Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Outgoing Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto will ask residents of Pittsburgh to observe a moment of silence at 9.54 a.m. next Wednesday, October 27th. That was the moment the shooting started at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh's Squirrel Hill neighborhood in 2018. The anti-Semitic attack left 11 worshipers dead, wounded two other congregants and police officers. Mayor Peduto's eight-year tenure will end in January when his successor takes office. But first... He spoke with me from his home in Squirrel Hill, just a few blocks from the synagogue building, to recount what it was like to comfort and protect not just the city he led, but his neighbors and friends after America's deadliest anti-Semitic attack three years ago Wednesday. Mayor Peduto, I want to start from the very beginning. You received a call early that morning. Can you take us back to that day? Yeah, I was here at my home, and it was a Saturday morning, and I didn't have anything in the schedule for the morning, so I decided it was a day to sleep in. And around 9.50 in the morning, my phone rang, which is not uncommon. But then when I didn't pick up, it rang again, which is a way of communication between my chief of staff and I if something is very wrong, meaning he needs to talk to me immediately. And we'd never had to utilize it. We talked about it, but that was the first time. And I realized that when I picked that phone up, there was going to be a critical issue. He had told me that the report had just come in through 911, that there was an active shooter at the Tree of Life Synagogue, that the individual was in the building, that officers, plural, had been shot, and it was believed that there were multiple victims. I said, okay, I'll call you back in a minute. And I put the phone down and I prayed. And then I called back within one or two minutes, I think. And I said, can you pick me up? Both of us live just a few blocks from the Tree of Life. And he said, I'm already on the way. We arrived at the synagogue before SWAT. So as we arrived, the first police officers were entering the building. Didn't really think about it at the time. You know, we were located as close as we could get and uh, not realizing that it was a very unsafe area. They moved us a couple blocks away. And I sat outside. It was a cold, rainy day. And little by little, information would come back and the severity of the situation would begin to unfold. And at first it was the realization that we had a mass homicide and just dealing with the idea of multiple families, multiple individuals being in a situation where the worst news that they will ever receive in their life would be forthcoming very, very soon. And then I can tell you exactly where I was when the reality hit me. I was on my way to uh, 
Mercy Hospital going up the hill to the emergency room entrance. And I was listening to NPR and they said in what has become the worst act of anti-Semitism in American history. And that's where the reality hit. It really wasn't to that point, I think because I was more concerned as to who the victims were. Squirrel Hill's a very, very tight-knit community. It's more than simply that you know everybody. It's how are they related. Two of the victims were the brother of my chief of staff's mother-in-law. It hit very, very close. And the idea of it becoming a national, international story of anti-Semitism was not on my mind during the first three hours. It just became absolutely crystal clear when hearing those words on national radio. Did other mayors reach out? Immediately. I started receiving text messages and phone calls from the mayors of other cities. And they offered advice. I mean, and it wasn't only in the cases of hate-based shootings. It was the mayor of Parkland, the mayor of Oakland, California, where the ghost ship fire occurred, where 35 or so young people lost their lives. It was mayors reaching out who have had to deal with the mass loss of life. And the advice varied from very specific protocols and federal assistance and individuals within the federal government to contact to the very general uh, about how to create priority or how to get and how important getting a message out was. So I relied heavily within the first 48 hours on my fellow mayors. They have provided unsolicited advice uh, to help me through. And since that time, I have become one of the mayors who is on the phone now 48 hours after an incident occurs in another city. It was my friend Libby Schaff, the mayor of Oakland, California, who gave me advice that I now give to any mayor that finds himself in a similar situation. And it was basically set your priorities now. What is the most important thing that you need to have in order to make a decision? In other words, set a North Star. In my case, it was very simple. It was the victim's families. And then after that, what is the next? And it was those that were injured. There were two congregates and also our police officers. After that, it was the Jewish community of Pittsburgh. And after that, it was the larger community of Pittsburgh. And once you're able to know that those are your priorities, it becomes very simple to make a decision. So as we're planning for the first funeral, the family wants to close down a major corridor, a traffic corridor outside of a synagogue. And the public safety director is insistent that we don't do it because of the access to hospitals. And my question is, what does the family want? and the family wants the corridor closed. So the answer is the corridor is closed. You put those priorities into place in dealing with a crisis that is 
more emotion than logic for almost everyone involved, it helps to be able to make difficult decisions. And it also gives you the ability to know where the priorities are set in making those decisions. You mentioned the connection to your chief of staff. This was your community. These were your neighbors. Did you know anyone personally who passed that day? I did know a few, and I knew almost half of the families. How did you balance those personal relationships with your role as mayor? It was very difficult. I was getting information as soon as it was being discovered during the first two hours standing outside of the synagogue. And as you can imagine, family members who couldn't reach their loved ones were running and driving and trying to get anywhere near the synagogue to try to get information. And a few of them were able to get to the area where, I mean, we had a number of elected officials there. The governor was there. Senator Casey was there. I think two members of Congress, the county executive. And we sort of corralled everybody and had them in a one block area so that we could share information with them. And then we had the media at the end of that block and we're trying to get information directly to them. Like I said, it had been raining that morning to the point where our public information officer's cell phone had become waterlogged and he was unable to get information out via Twitter. So we were relying a lot more upon direct communication in order to be able to let the people of Pittsburgh and the world know what was occurring. I will never forget in my life having a friend of mine come up to me and her brothers were in there and I had just gotten word about a half hour before that one of the brothers, one of the workers of the synagogue was leaving, uh, saw him and didn't think that he had made it. And she came up and she asked if I knew anything and I couldn't confirm that report. So I didn't tell her, but her husband was there with her. And when she went to talk to somebody else, I had to prepare him to be able to tell her that potentially it could be the worst news. The woman's brothers, did they make it out? Both her brothers were killed. Having that and then going to the JCC in order to be able to be with the families as the information was coming in, in hearing back from the public safety director, different information as they started to identify who the individuals were while sitting at these big tables with the family members. It was very difficult. And I don't mean that in the sense that I had a tough job to do. I mean, it was a personal trauma that went beyond being a mayor but just being a friend to a lot of people who were about to receive the most horrific news that they could imagine. You have to remember that the victims were, for the most part, elderly, completely innocent. I said back then, and I really realized it within that day, I don't know when, some point that afternoon, 
that there are different levels of evil and a homicide is evil and it's the worst that humanity can do. And then when it happens to either the very young or the very old, it's a different level of evil. When it's the innocent, it's a very different level of evil. When it happens at a place of sanctuary, it is a different level of evil. And when it's done for the pure hatred of anything, any way of identifying not the individual, but who they are, it's another level. And we were dealing with the deepest level of evil. Mayor, how did you process the trauma? And how did you help the Jewish community and the city process the trauma and feel safe? I didn't sleep that night. Saturday night, I I was up all night. And I finally broke down. I think it was Tuesday. My friends took me out. And on the way back home, along with the sergeant who was driving me, I emotionally broke down. It was Thursday. I took a nap in the afternoon and I had a terrible anxiety dream where my late father and I were in our front yard and Gollum appeared. He was in a ditch as a statue and walked down the street of where my childhood home was. And I talked to a rabbi about it afterwards and tried to figure out what the symbolism was. I know where it came from. It came from a tour that I had done in Prague of the Jewish neighborhood and being told of the story and being told of the cemetery that was there and how the bodies had to be stacked because of the limited amount of land that the Jews had in Prague and were allowed to be able to bury their relatives. And that's what the ditch was. And that's, but I, I woke myself up by screaming for my father. I know it has affected me in a very personal way, not in any way like those that lost their family members or those that grew up studying the Holocaust and studying anti-Semitism for centuries and thinking that that was history and not reality. I spent a lot of time those first couple of weeks with children within the Jewish community. On Monday, we took police officers to each of our schools to let the kids know that the bad guy was in jail and he's not going to be able to come out. And that these officers are people you're going to be seeing around your school, but they're only there to protect you. There's no danger. I saw it with the high school kids. They were affected. They were knowledgeable enough to know that, my God, it's real and it's happened again. And young enough to not feel empowered to be able to do anything about it. And that first night when they put together a gathering of the community, I was inside the church as people just filled every inch of the church. And I was so impressed that they were able to do that in just a matter of hours. 
And I still remember the feeling when I walked out of the church in the entire intersection all around it was filled with people and I had no idea. And it wasn't just the thousand or so that were inside the church, but several thousand that got anywhere they could to be close. And they came from everywhere. And it was just a group of teenagers on Facebook that said, we need to gather together. And the entire community got there. There is, and I hope nobody asked to see it, but there is a light in very bad darkness. And I saw it. Can you recall other examples of that light? There was a young man, as I was leaving one of the schools, and I was walking to the car, a minivan was coming down a hill, and it hit the brakes, and it started coming back towards me. And that same sergeant was there, and he's like, you know, we're all at heightened alert, what's going on? And a young man jumped out of the minivan, and he handed me a glass of ace with flowers in it. And I said, what's this for? And he said, because you're my neighbor and I love you. And he jumped back in the car and I'm like, hold on. And I went and I got to see who this is. Maybe I know them. I had no idea who the woman was. She was there with her young teenage son and her minivan was filled with vases with flowers in them. And she was just driving through the neighborhood, giving strangers flowers. Those flowers sat outside my door with a candle in the flag of Israel for two weeks. Earlier this year, more than 600 mayors across the country, including yourself, signed a pledge uniting against anti-Semitism. When there is so much for a mayor to do and worry about garbage collection, law enforcement, clean water, potholes, why should mayors make fighting anti-Semitism a priority? When you think about the role of a mayor... It is basically the operations of a city. You are the administrator, the CEO of making sure that services are being provided to people in the most effective, efficient, and equitable way. And people work hard for their tax dollars and they need to be able to be assured that that's what's happening. But the other role of a mayor is as a community voice in many cases, the only voice. And in that, there is a responsibility and an opportunity to be able to bring people together. That's why you hear mayors speak about pragmatism. That's why you hear mayors very rarely up on the soapbox trying to find ways to divide us. In many cases, we are the only voice that people may hear from government that tries to find ways to bring us together. So when we see the real effects of anti-Semitism, we have to speak out and we have to be able to say that this is a way that divides our community against itself. And we need to be able to explain why not only is it wrong, but how we will do anything that is necessary to make sure that it does not exist. The idea that it was an attack on people simply because how they worship God was the baseline. It's just that it was wrapped in 
thousands of years of anti-Semitism, which number one, you would hope that we would have been passed. And number two, when it directly affects your city, your neighborhood, there's a dark feeling that goes over that much more than watching it from another city or town. Mayor Peduto, thank you for your leadership and for reflecting on that period of time with us. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining me again after our bonus live episode earlier this week is Liel Leibovitz, co-host of Tablet Magazine's podcast, Unorthodox. Liel, thank you for coming back for another chat. An absolute pleasure. It has been a very intense week. First, you and I talked about the rise of anti-Semitism in the UK, which is always a fun topic. And then, of course, listeners just heard my conversation with Mayor Peduto. Before the attack on Tree of Life, had you spent much time in Pittsburgh? I have friends in Pittsburgh. I've been a couple of times. I was always struck by how Pittsburgh, to me, is... When you imagine a Jewish community, what you're thinking about is Squirrel Hill. Just as someone who's been there a couple of times before spending some serious time there, you walk down the street and they're like kosher bakeries and delis and everyone belongs to two shoals. And there's just like a feeling of like Hamisha Yiddishkeit in the air. And so I've always really loved it. But the day after the attack, so... It's Saturday morning and a bunch of us are observant and a bunch of us are not. And, you know, phones start circulating, texts start swirling, people start knocking on doors and saying, oh, my God, have you heard what happened? We had absolutely no idea what to do. We were like everyone else, you know, hurt and confused and horrified. And so there's only one thing we could think of doing. We got in a car and we drove, knowing nothing, not knowing where we'll sleep, not knowing what we'll do, and also a little bit fearful that we were sort of descending on this community that was scrambling to heal from a very recent tragedy. But we simply, you know, as people whose livelihood and and whose life force is talking about, reporting about, writing about Jewish life in America, we couldn't not be there. And, you know, this may sound a little cliched, but we were absolutely floored when we got there because we thought so strongly that the story was going to be the tragedy, that it was going to be the wound, that it was going to be the kind of great big weight of this horrible, murderous attack. And instead, it was a very different story. It was an oddly hopeful story. It was a story of a community truly coming together. Because even then, on that Sunday, you could see what the fabric of this community was like. And and my friend Mark Oppenheimer just published this amazing book about the attack. And one of the characters in it, I, I don't mean to say character is a real person, said, you know, if a tragedy like that had to happen to any Jewish community in America, it's a blessing that it happened in Pittsburgh, because that is the one community that could get through it and inspire us with lessons of how you truly stand together. There are not enough words to describe how deeply inspired I remain by that community. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I feel similarly that Pittsburgh was, (laughs) in a very dark way, it was a blessing for it to happen there. But I see it from a different perspective. I see it from the perspective as a religion reporter. I had only been to Pittsburgh once before the attack. It was for a friend's wedding. And the only thing I knew about Pittsburgh before that was that it had one of the country's best religion reporters, Peter Smith, who worked for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette at the time. He later became president of the Religion News Association. He's a very dear friend and really a mentor in the profession. And to have 
Peter and the team at the Post-Gazette covering that on the ground, day to day, hour to hour, each development, and really bringing all of the lessons learned to the Religion News Association, to the rest of the country's religion reporters, I thought that that was how it should be, that we needed an expert on the ground covering what was going on and then having the platform to share that with the rest of the country's religion reporters. And I've had a lot of conversations with him since then about what he learned, his growing awareness of anti-Semitism. And I think that that is something that all religion journalists can benefit from. And so in many ways, I see Pittsburgh as really a place we can look to and learn from, not just about anti-Semitism, but yeah, also about the right community response. You know, here's where I think it begins. You know, I think people listening to us right now may find themselves nodding their heads, being like, yeah, those are nice. Those are platitudes. But what are the actual takeaways? Well, here's one. My Rebbe, the Lubavitcher rabbi, famously said something that when you kind of glance or hear it in passing, can sound like a little bit trite, a little bit corny. He said, there are no Orthodox Jews. There are no Reformed Jews. There are no conservative Jews. There are no secular Jews or liberal Jews or conservative Jews. There are only Jews. Stop with these divisions. And you think like, well, yeah, it's ridiculous. Of course, there are a lot of these really, you know, marked, visible, important distinctions that shouldn't be brushed off. But when you get to Pittsburgh, you understand just how lived in the experience of refusing to set divides truly is. Because you would have, you know, Orthodox minyanim in which people who don't define themselves as Orthodox belong just to be part of the community just to make sure that everything is cohesive. You will find gathering places, you would find programs, you would find friendships, real true friendships between people who don't look alike, who don't think alike, who don't vote alike, who don't feel like they need to agree on everything. And, you know, sometimes it's practical and organizational people making a concerted effort to pay dues to two synagogues. I mean, most Jews don't even pay dues to one, right? Just to kind of feel themselves tethered to a community. And sometimes it's much more informal and much more profound than that in the passing and conversations and gatherings. That to me is such a wonderful clarion call. And if we want to live Pittsburgh and if we want to kind of bottle a little bit of its magic and its kind of power, I think that's where we begin. We begin by refusing to adhere to these stupid divides. Absolutely. I think that is so important for people to understand that there are so many different ways to be Jewish. I've talked about this before. There's such a spectrum in the religious tradition. And I think that's important for everyone to realize that no one is more Jewish than another person, that there are so many different ways. And that's important to understand. It's also important for our journalists to understand that there is no one way to be Jewish, that we are all Jewish. It is a community, a very diverse community. And I think that Pittsburgh, it really is a paragon of that. So thank you for pointing that out. Well, Liel, thank you for joining us this week. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. In case you missed last week's episode, please be sure to listen to our conversation with award-winning author Dara Horn about her book, People Love Dead Jews. And next week, Tune in for the final episode in our October series on anti-Semitism, when I interview AJC's Avi Mayer and Holly Huffnagel on the troubling realities revealed in AJC's 2021 report on the state of anti-Semitism in America. Please join us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. 
Our producers are Ku Kong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.